Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Kavi Global, Vegeta Katawala. After 15 years working in data analytics for major companies like GE and United Airlines, Vegeta had, t- had seen tons of problems in the data implementation plus consulting firms of the day. No one he worked with could provide sustainable and simple value, leading to frustrating data implementations and laborsome tech projects. So in 2008, Kavi Global was created with the idea that analytics projects needed to be less complex, risky, and time-consuming. Today, Kavi is a leader in global data analytics, has won more awards than we can count, and is skyrocketing up the Inc. 5000 list. So my friend, let's get into it. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, we, we touched a little bit on potentially the origin story for your company, your history at GE and United Airlines and companies like that. But in your own and uh, your own telling, where did the idea for this company come from, and how did this how did this get started? Yes, uh, so um, I was um, reaching eleven years at uh, GE, and I for some reason stopped um, having fun uh, early in my career at uh, United Airlines and GE. Um, I had a lot of fun. Um, this is uh, at one point I told my boss, "Hey, I can't believe you pay me for this." She kept giving me more and more money and bonuses. And stock and stuff. So I had to tell her that hey, you don't have to. <laughs> it's fun. But at some point towards the end of that time frame, I stopped having fun. I realized that they, they, there's much bigger things I can do with this. Um, I also came to the realization uh, because of the, some of the awards and other things we got, we got to see what the world is doing at that time. Um, so I was thinking, yeah, I came from United Airlines, and I was building this capability at GE, uh, and the rest of the world is coming along with me, but uh, to go back and see that the rest of the world uh, was still there. So at that point, I I realized there is a bigger uh, opportunity here uh, to um, uh, do this right. Uh, As you mentioned, I was getting frustrated uh, with the services I was receiving from the consulting companies uh, as GE. Uh, in, the, in the buy side, I had access to all types of consulting uh, companies, but sure. in mind, uh, they weren't really addressing my needs of providing value. Uh, same thing with the software, but software story actually played out uh, very well now that we all know that uh, the, all of the software vendors got the major disrupted and new innovation came, the open source and, and cloud and, and others. So software has changed consulting services to date, um, I, I think is in the, in the legacy model, um, uh, not providing much value. So, uh, and, and the idea and the timing was perfect. Um, I really didn't know coming out of GE that analytics is going to be the next big thing. So uh, there's some part of luck in there, but the timing was perfect. Uh, meaning in 2009, uh, after the economic downturn, when the market started going up, analytics uh, slowly became the new thing, next uh, next big thing, right? So um, there's some luck involved in there too. Absolutely. 
there's always a little bit of luck meeting some preparation, right? I want, I want to know how long did it take you to decide, Hey, I think I'm, I'm bored. I'm a little frustrated. I see an idea. Oh, maybe this would be something I could do next that you mentioned was bigger than what I was doing now. How, how long did it take you to make that decision to make the leap? Too long. Um, so um, I, I met a founder um, uh, from SAS, uh, Dr. Jim Goodnight, uh, early in my career, and, and um, he was somebody I looked uh, up to. In one personal meeting, I, I was having a conversation with him. Uh, he asked uh, out of the blues, how, how long have you been working? When I mentioned that uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of getting out of GE and starting my own business uh, to do software and, and services uh, for data analytics. So his question was, hey, how long uh, you have been um, in GE? I said at that point, about 10 years. So he said it's too long. Um, and he's, he mentioned, this is a little known fact, Dr. Goodnight himself apparently worked for GE for one year. Uh, at the time, uh, wow. um, defense contracting work, he said all it took me to uh, realize that I'm not cut out for corporate is one year. So his question to me was, what took you so long? <laughs> what what do you think took you so long? Um, actually, I, I mean, the, the, I was always the misfit in the corporate. Uh, th that, that's partly what led to my frustration eventually. I, I was the entrepreneur and innovator where the, the business wanted the operator, yeah. right? Yeah. There was a big disconnect in there. And I, I, I just, uh, after a, a, about a year of thinking about it, one day I just told my wife, hey, today I'm going to tell my boss. She said, go do it. Um, wow. I, so uh, that, that family support and all that is very important. But at that point, I've been talking to her about it and she realized, hey, we have to do this. So uh, at that point, I, I, I told my boss, that day, um, hey, I have to leave. But I, I have built the team. Uh, there was no major impact of uh, me me leaving. But I, I am now realizing the impact. Looking back, um, last twelve years or so in the company, amount of unlearning I had to do uh, of uh, as a corporate leader leading this type of initiatives to become an entrepreneur. Uh, there was a lot of undoing, uh, right? So there's certain things I learned um, as a corporate leader, but most of my success cannot be attributed to what I learned in the corporate. A actually, it in certain ways impaired my ability to do the right thing in early on in the company. Wow. Okay, I want to get back to that. I made a note to get back to that because I really want to hear some examples and how you uh, experienced that. Uh, but just backing up a little bit, I want to know the day that you said, I want to tell my boss, you, you make your exit from GE. What, where, where did you start? Like, what did it look like to go to work on the new project? Where did you start? Yeah, so um, at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I, I knew there's something that my skills and my experience, uh, I, I could always become a consultant. And, and eventually, that's what we did as a company, uh, became a consulting company. So I had the confidence, say, this is, there's some value in what I do. There is, I, I could always go find another job. Mm -hmm. So, but when I uh, told my wife, that was a critical moment in, in our life. 
my daughter was about to graduate from college, so we didn't really have saved up for uh, her college. My wife was full-time employed, so she said, I can pay the mortgage. We will figure out uh, about the daughter. Worst case scenario, we can get a loan. And, and in a good case scenario, she will get a scholarship, and which she did. Uh, so things play out uh, uh, <clears throat> the way that, that, that it's going to pan out. Uh, it, it's that hesitancy, right? Yeah. In the first year or so, I remember a couple of people I had and I wasn't taking a, a, a pay and I didn't have money to pay there. Uh, be the people. I mean, we were making money right out of the bed, but not enough. Uh, so um, I, I remember the day um, we were waiting until my get, wife get paid so we, I can pay the people. Wow. Uh, I think we all, all entrepreneurs rem- know those days, <laughs> know those days too well, where you're, you're, you're trying to buy time, you know, you're waiting for a client to finally pay and you're trying to figure out how to pay the light bill at the same time as maybe the employees or something. Was that mentally challenging for you going from the safety net to a degree of a set salary and, you know, your job at, at a big corporation to I'm on my own. What did I do? You know, I've got to go out and get it all myself. Was that challenging mentally that first year? Oh, very. Um, so uh, it, it's the lifestyle change. So you have to cut down a lot of the things I could otherwise afford. I, uh, to date, uh, if you count what the pay I take versus why I used to get uh, a G when I left, uh, still there's a big gap. Uh, and I never made it up to my my, my pay uh, in GE. So there are a lot of sacrifices. So in that sacrifice, most important thing is that your partner is willing to go through that sacrifice and, and that partner trusts you. Now, my wife and I have a long history. Uh, I met her in the former Soviet Union, um, while going to school. Uh, no way. Russian in Tbilisi, Georgia. So uh, we went uh, from there to my home country, uh, Sri Lanka, um, and we um, started our life there. I had our kid uh, there and I came to graduate school here and then she followed me. She raised the first three years of our daughter all by herself in a foreign country. So um, we have done crazy stuff. So she was not scared of the crazy stuff or that uh, um, never stopped believing in, in what we can do together. So um, that's, the, that's the support that, that she said when I said, hey, I'm ready to leave. I'm mentally ready. That, that doesn't mean that I had money or safety net or anything like that. But one thing did happen a couple of days after I announced uh, that I want to leave, uh, I, I met the CEO of the company. So uh, I was reporting to the CIO at the time and he said, hey, I don't know, whatever you got to do, go do it, right? And the CEO uh, came and sat down with me in my room and said, I don't know why you do it. You don't have to explain it to me either. Um, you have something crazy going on in your head. So, but always remember, if you want to come back, door is open. So at wow. that point, I realized hey, my risk is zero. Wow. I have an answer. Hey, I, I go try to do this for a couple of months. It doesn't work out. They crawl back in and you're all good, right? So. <laughs> wow. Do you remember uh, the, the name of that CEO? Yes. Yes. Joe Latanzio. Okay. I still have a relationship with him and we are good friends. And, uh, wow. and my boss, um, uh, Bill O'Neill, um, actually last week, he finally did what I did 12 years later. What? Oh, no way. 
Yeah. So um, he was working a long time GE um, executive. Um, and he was doing a gig as a CIO in, in one of the Chicago uh, Warren Buffett companies called Marmon. And last week he told me, yeah, I'm out. So I asked him, what are you going to do? I don't know. So I said, <laughs> you have to tell me anything. I know exactly what you mean. Let's have lunch a couple of weeks from now and let's figure this out. So that that's probably happened um, like, a, I don't know, very minuscule percentage of the people ever get to do that. But when he said he did it, but, but he said, hey, you inspired me and there are a couple of others we know that uh, came out of GE and did something similar. Um, so another lady uh, is Amita Shetty um, and she recently did, she was a VP at one of the uh, big GE, the uh, post GE, she was one of the VPs in one of their uh, rail companies here in Chicago. Um, she, she quit um, and w- went to work for uh, UIC, Univ- University Leno in Chicago. Now she's uh, uh, taking a role there, uh, working with uh, women in tech, and she's doing a lot of uh, great things. Uh, so, Bill, wow. you and Amita inspired me. I, I decided to do it. That's so cool. Uh, the reason I was asking is one, I want to highlight him because what a great, what a great CEO to, 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 to give you that permission to go for your dreams. And two, I wasn't sure if you were there at the same time as a man named Randy Dobbs. Were you there when Randy was there? Um, probably, but GE is so big, um, I don't claim to know. A lot yeah, of he was, um, I believe he was the CEO of GE North America for a while, and then CEO of GE Capital, ITS. Yes. Uh, his name was Randy Dobbs, and he's, he's become a mentor and a good friend to me, oh. and I loved his experience there, but got to a similar place where he had he had grown and stretched himself all the way from the factory room floor to being an executive at GE and then realized he wanted to cut his teeth somewhere else and started moving around and taking other opportunities just to keep growing and to keep pushing himself. Um, but I'd love to connect the two of you guys. You guys probably know a lot of similar people and he's yeah. he's just he's a rock star. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I, I, I have never met a rock star in person, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> very <laughs> metaphorical, very metaphorical rock star, that's for sure. Uh, man, that's awesome. Well, so I want to get back to what you were talking about, the journey of unlearning, you know, many of the of the kind of corporate leadership things in your entrepreneurial journey. And I'd just love for you to, to elaborate on some of that and maybe give us some examples of what that unlearning entailed. Yes. So if you, if you um, look at their education system, okay, I, I had the pleasure of experiencing education system in my home country, Sri Lanka, way back in Russia, uh, the, the former Soviet Union, um, as well as in America. They are very, three very different uh, educational systems, but they have one thing in common, that they prepare you for a job. Okay. So after high school, I became an electrical engineer. And then I came to US, became a systems and industrial engineer with a minor in computer science. Okay, so that's what I was prepared to. They never taught me um, anything entrepreneurial at school or at work. So now, Jen, when you come to United Airlines, hey, you need to manage a team, you need to run a business. You give orders, you have consultants working for you, you have teams working for you, employees, you tell them what to do. 
Okay, so you have the technical expertise, you, you lead from top down, command type of thing, right? So um, GE is very much structured like that. So we are operationally very good companies, right? So that's what they train, that's what they expect you to do. So in, in early in my uh, entrepreneurial experience, I, I try to do the same. And then I, I realize it doesn't work. Here in a small company with a lot of constraints, a lot of limitations, little, very little funds, you can't run it like that. You need to inspire people. You need to get them to create. You pretty much don't do anything other than facilitating it, right? So that yeah. my transformation from the command and control to a servant leader um, took a long time, way, way too long. Uh, and also, uh, the, the the problem is that the ugly monster jumps out once in a while and, and it is counterproductive to what you do. Yeah. So that's what I call the unlearning. So you have to not only unlearn, you have to force it out of your system. Yeah, because it's almost like uh, muscle memory, right? Exactly. Exactly. So can you elaborate? I, 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 I understand what you're saying, but just I would love to, to hear you elaborate on that servant leader versus command and control. What does that what did that actually look like? Like where where did where did you have the opportunity to go from one to the other in the in, in your entrepreneurial journey? Right. So w one of the things that happened is soon after I left GE and started the company, um, one of the, the person who led the my data science team at GE, Rajesh Inbashwikaran, joined me immediately because he and I had a chemistry and we understood each other and we were kind of complementing each other. So he immediately joined the company, right? And after that, 10 other people joined. If you look at our leadership, uh, those are uh, the consist of uh, Vignesh who runs their uh, the COO right now, services department and stuff, uh, Rajesh, who is the current CTO of the company, um, and uh, the person, Srini, who runs the software. Uh, there are three out of those 10 people who came from the original GE team. So um, I jokingly say uh, we, we incubated Kavi um, Global inside GE. So yeah. when <laughs> came out, uh, we were a mature team that already had the, the success inside GE uh, as well as external recognition. So because of that, it wasn't hard for us to get business or, or get going. So immediately we were a mature team who had been working uh, five, six years together at that time. So we just continue what we were doing outside of uh, GE. So um, that accelerated um, and also that helped uh, eventually, after the first year or so, uh, we started to earn a decent living. At that point, now we can uh, put our uh, dreams uh, into work. So a uh, lot of the other things, again, um, the luck plays played a role, uh, uh, open source and uh, this massive uh, transformation uh, change that happened in the market with respect to data and analytics and cloud and other we were able to ride that wave as an experienced team, continuously innovating. Um, so uh, it, it is hard when you compete with the, the giants, uh, the big uh, uh, companies, but uh, we, we have figured out 
how to uh, be always be innovative, reinvent uh, the company pretty much every year at this point, uh, re reinventing the in the company and what we do. And um, so since since the original uh, since the original um, consulting company, now um, <clears throat> we have what we call the three S's: services, software, and solutions. Um, so we announced that to the world um, just before COVID in early 2020. Um, and also we opened up our Kavi Labs uh, that uh, used to be an uh, internal uh, capability for drive our innovation internally. We opened it up to uh, our clients last year. Uh, so we are getting a lot of uh, traction and we are reinventing the company uh, to become what I call an analytics powerhouse. Um, equivalent of uh, us does not exist in the, in the marketplace, um, as well as I believe uh, data and analytics is a long-term trend. Even though it's, a, it's almost a decade now, we are right at the, the beginning of the, that uh, sea change, so to speak. Um, a lot of things happening. We hear a lot of AI and how our lives are going to be dramatically different uh, in the next decade and couple of decades to come. Uh, that's all driven by the the software. So we are at the cutting edge of that that change. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about that real quick. I made some notes of things I want to go back to that you just mentioned. But first, if I'm a business owner listening to this, and I am, I'm I'm, I'm a business owner talking to you. What do you think we should know about where business in the world is at in terms of software development and data analytics? Like, what should we at least be knowing, thinking about? maybe taking advantage of or watching for right now as a business owner? Yes, so uh, the software is getting intelligent every day. Mm. Okay, but we have not reached anywhere near its potential. In the software development, uh, in my mind, is still in dark ages. It's back in the industrial revolution, um, when you look at artisans doing stuff, uh, that's what led to the industrial revolution and scaling and other things, right? But we are at the beginning of industrial software revolution. Software is pretty unintelligent right now it, it, compared to what it could be, not compared to what it was a decade ago. It's, it's a massive change, but uh, it, this is going to be an exponential curve from here. Because a lot of the, the things are happening, like uh, the, the, the things that contribute to that exponential uh, growth and the change, uh, the, it's impacting how it's impacting the society and pretty much every industry, um, all the jobs, um, that, that how uh, remarkable it, it is change, right? It, it's contributing to the, the change in the, the humankind, uh, so to speak, in everything you can in, Pretty much imaginable, right? Yeah. So um, the the way um, I, I say why it is um, uh, in the in the still in the artisanal uh, mode is that it is very very labor intensive. Software is a paper list, uh, right? Uh, that's why the large consulting companies. That's one of the things uh, like a support of, of what we think we will. They're messy. They take armies of people to maintain. Have, um, G companies like GE have ten, tens of thousands of people in India and other places 
running their software programs uh, and improving them. And so we are, we are in that artisanal mode, heavily labor intensive. This is like 200 years ago farming. 90% of the people had something to do with farming. Now it is like 4% of the people have anything to do with uh, agriculture, right? So ah, that, that makes so much sense. That's the kind of productivity that came through the industrial revolution to agriculture. Now, we are working on software that writes software. Okay, a lot of the things, uh, the, the level of productivity and level of efficiency you can get, people are not even thinking about those things yet. So we, uh, we came up with a software that future proofs your data analytics environment. When I talk to the people, what, what's future proofing the, the software? People haven't even started thinking about it. it it's a new concept. It, we change it every five years, 10 years, and we have to redo it. Uh, no, you don't have to. Huh. You, you, you can separate the, the, the brains of the software from your technology, right? And then put it on another technology when that becomes available. So there are ways you can future proof. People are not even thinking about this thing. They are so far out, but we don't think they are far out. Software that writes software exists today in small ways, but that is going to be the future. Okay, there's not enough people, software programmers to support this huge need that's coming up, right? Every industry has to go through this transformation and software is the key. So when you say future-proofing, is what you're saying, typically somebody builds their own software that serves the need in the moment, but then technology and the world evolves and it becomes out of date and then they got to go back in and create from scratch, you know, an updated software for their service or whatever. And you guys are saying, what if we created an intelligence, a machine learning or a software intelligence that would keep it up to date? Is that, is that kind of what you mean by future-proofing, that it would... The, yes, in not quite the same way though, that, that, that's the concept, but it is uh, abstracting the, the software. Okay, you don't want to hard code your logic, your business, whatever you want the software to do into a particular technology. Okay, you can keep it as an abstracted layer that you can put on any software. So, ah. so, so it's fundamentally changing how the software is developed and architected today versus, I mean, things like that exist. Like for example, um, you write one program, um, one app that can be deployed on say Android and Apple. Okay. Yep. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the phones, right? So now you had to architect in such a way that the technology and the form factor, the phone doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it, there is a layer that translates whatever you say into the hardware that it understands, right? So that's how you have to think about the, the enterprise software development does not think about like that today. Sure. So that's when I complain that uh, uh, the vendors don't help me uh, the, the, to do the things that, as a customer the way I want to do it. So if you look at this, ever-changing need to keep the things updated on your people to do it. Actually, that's good for business if you're in the services business or software business. Right, right. right. New and all this, uh, the, the change is good. The change is bad for the customer. 
because every time it's a big project, it's a hip and replace, and it's a lot of investment. And the, the maturity of whatever you want to do is not going up. It's just a, hey, we have to change because this vendor doesn't support that version anymore, or that's all fair vendor went down. Now we have to, we don't have people who write in that whatever program sure. is not anymore. So we have to get it to a supportable infrastructure. Most of the time, it, there's no easy way to go from here to there. It's always rip and replace. So you had to find not only the new platform people who can understand what the heck is going on in the old platform. Because those are also, there's no documentation. There's a, if people have moved on who developed it. So a lot of drama, right? I, I, I run into places where 20, 30 year old stuff uh, is running in a mainframe. Nobody knows what it is doing. They don't want to touch it yeah. because all of that <laughs> might uh, <laughs> go off off the rails, right? So yeah. they're Almost just like an old nuclear facility where they're like, just exactly, don't touch it. Exactly. That's the that's the current state of the software development. There are a lot of old nuclear facilities. Wow. Wow. So that makes so, total sense. Like if we think about the old nuclear f uh, facilities, it was a very crude way to get the power they were looking for and it worked. But now we look back at these outdated things and they're no longer the most efficient or useful way to, you know, to get, to get energy. And now we don't even know what to do with them. We don't want to touch them in case there's a nuclear meltdown and we don't know what to do with the waste to a small degree. You're saying outdated software is becoming like that. Is that right? Yes, the, I, I think that I didn't think of that, but it's a great analogy. But think about the risks, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, this goes down, you can't get it back. Now, business yeah. starts, piece of the business. A, and think about the uh, vulnerabilities, securities, and others. It, this may open the door for cyber attack, and then uh, you're held uh, <clears throat> for ransom, right? Yep. I just We just went through our gas shortages because of that here in, here in Atlanta. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm pretty sure that was one of those old nuclear um, software opened up uh, something to get back, roll it in, right? Yeah, yeah. People realize, now, now think about this. When you talk about the bridges and roads and other things, if we need our infrastructure modernization, Biden talks about it now, how much billions we have to put into trillions, whatever, right? But people don't realize because software you don't see. Right. It's running in some old computer somewhere there. People don't even know those things exist, the old data centers and wherever. And people, it, it, it's not something you can show your president or CEO if this thing is a, like a, a bridge that's going to collapse, right? <laughs> or oh, oh, yeah. a facility that is going to blow up. Nobody understands. The leadership firm has very minimal awareness of it. They keep cutting the budgets of ID departments every year, uh, just like the, um, the, how the infrastructure operates. Budgets are cut and the bridges are collapsing. Right. So is this something that you guys, when you mentioned you have kind of the three parts of your business, the services, the software, and the solutions, is this a current problem that you guys are able to solve or is this one that you're working on that's in development right now? At least in the data and analytics, we today have the technology to future-proof uh, data enterprise data and analytics uh, developments. Uh, we have uh, two patents already issued by the U.S. Uh, PTO, um, and several patents on the on the way. Uh, how we deploy these things on the cloud, make it cloud diagnostic, uh, future-proof. Uh, uh, that technology is already here. Wow, 
Wow. So yeah, can you give us an idea of of the difference, like what what the current? Because you said the business is reinvented every year. What does the current business look like in terms of your who, who's your customer and what in particular are you guys doing for them at this current stage of the business? Yeah. So we're we're working across um, several industries: um, healthcare, transportation, industrial, um, and few others uh, as it comes. So many of the things we we do uh, is industry agnostic, some of the, the tools and technologies we developed, I mentioned to you. But uh, we are currently getting a lot of traction in healthcare. Uh, there, there's an intersection of biotech and information technology happening right now, driven by the, primarily by the CMS Center for Medicare Medicaid. Uh, they're forcing their industrial, uh, the healthcare industry change. So that has a lot to do with the application of AI, um, reporting, um, um, the quality measures, outcome measures. Uh, so they everybody woke up um, uh, about a, around 2010, around that time, uh, the uh, government decided a major changes required in the healthcare. So there's a lot of uh, activities going on. Uh, they're forcing the adoption of the uh, electronic health uh, record, uh, meaningful use of information, uh, reporting the quality and outcomes and other. So it, it's the government driven change to the healthcare industry because of that we see a lot of change. A and among them, there are few um, innovative companies that who really want to make a sustainable change above and beyond what the government is posing them, for example, uh, we just uh, sign a we just sign a uh, <clears throat> agreement uh, with Lurie's Children's Hospital in um, Chicago. Here, there's a press release coming up. So, what I'm going to tell is uh, uh, public information. We have uh, gotten the press release authorized. Uh, in that, uh, it, it's the the innovation uh, partnership, uh, the research collaboration. Uh, so wow. we are. We are doing um, a lot of cool stuff in there, in the computer vision, nature recognition, in the areas that uh, you can provide a better healthcare to children in this case. Uh, so I can't talk too much about what they are exactly doing because of the, some of the NDAs and other stuff, but um, uh, we are seeing a um, lot of creative, innovative uh, uh, things happening right now. And we are a part of that, uh, that's a, that's a world-changing uh, type of uh, innovation that is happening right now. Wow, man, I love any any positive uh, innovation in the healthcare space is exciting because it's good for everybody, right? And I was talking to a company last year, and I cannot remember the name of it, but they were also part of making some changes in the healthcare space. And just what a meaningful contribution that is. And they were talking about basically that it's so archaic that there's so many parts of the healthcare system that are so archaic that even small changes have big effects in a positive way. And so it's exciting yeah. to, to contribute to that space. Yes, so uh, the analogy I make there is, um, remember back in the day when the automobile was uh, coming up, um, right? Um, so the older um, generation or, or older uh, prevailing uh, business model at, at the time was trying to make a faster horse. And then you came up with the engine and that powered the automobile, right? So yep, yep. this history, the, the carriage no more um, other than in the historic context, context right? 
So similarly, um, healthcare as it is practiced today has to change fundamentally. Okay, uh, so the focus today is basically diagnose and prescribe. Uh, very little of uh, prevention and in the cases of uh, uh, what we call the lifestyle diseases, uh, things like um, diabetes, cancer, and pretty much all the modern illnesses we talk about sure. um, are uh, categorized as uh, uh, non-communicable diseases or lifestyle diseases for simplicity. Those are all uh, because of your nutrition, because of your lifestyle um, and others, right? So sure. a lot of those things are preventable and if you have it, they are reversible. But, but today uh, you don't hear much of that preventable part or the reversible part because that is actually change, disruption, right? Because if it is reversible, oh, they are called the maintaining diseases, right? Uh, the maintenance. If you have a blood pressure for the rest of your life, uh, you have to take the pill. If yeah. you have the cholesterol, same. Uh, if you uh, have diabetes, same, right? So nobody really want to talk about uh, that prevention and the reversible nature of these diseases because that's bad for prevailing business model, right? So you're not going to get very popular by talking about it. Right, right. If the business model is treating patients and you're getting them better, you don't have a very great business model, right? Exactly. So it's bad for business, right? So um, they are they're trying to make the faster horse. So most of the research, uh, most of the innovation is trying to make a faster horse. Mm. Uh, so our goal is to invent the automobile for healthcare. So that is the change. That's the disruption um, I am focused on. Uh, our Come company. on. Yes. Yeah, I'm so excited you're out there doing this. Yes. It makes it when you zoom out like that and you hear you describe it, it makes all the sense in the world, right? Saying yeah, yeah. if a if a good percentage, a high percentage of the things we're even having to diagnose and treat ongoing could have been prevented by lifestyle changes, habits, nutrition, uh man, like that that that'd be better for everybody, right? So it's yeah. kind of like going to proactive versus reactive, right? Some of the research, some of the innovation is on the self, on the family, okay? Um, in the um, last couple of years, I lost uh, 30 plus pounds myself. I stopped drinking altogether. I became a vegan. Yeah. And all of the health benefits of that is amazing. I got out of several pills. Okay, if I was in the corporate and uh, doing the things what I'm supposed to do, that, that model I talked about, prepare to, you to work and you become a slave in that environment. And then you, <clears throat> the, the, the human uh, life progression is very, very predictable. You can actually tell what medication you are going to take when you're at a certain age. Mm. And, and you have no idea that these things are reversible or you shouldn't have gotten it in the first place. The simple changing in lifestyles and uh, uh, nutrition and other exercise and other can make all these changes, right? So public is not aware of this thing because that's not a part of our education uh, curriculum. Sure. Or it is part of the doctor's education curriculum because nobody is funding that, right? So, um, so th th those are the those those are the things. When 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 I 
look for future change. Whatever we are doing today is not sustainable, right? The 70% of the agricultural land is used for animal husbandry. Okay, um, and think about that cost. We are talking about the global warming and other things. Sure. And we are driving electric cars or put the solar panels on the roof or whatever it is we are doing is a drop in the bucket. It is not going to do any meaningful change. It's, it's, it's good for you to tell the other people you're doing something for, their, for your children and um, generations to come, but you're not. Yeah, you're, doing yeah. you're doing lip service, right? But right. if you stop eating meat as one person, you're going to make a huge change, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you are essentially saving their environment because the environment damage is caused by animal agriculture. 70% of the habitable land and waterways and all that is polluted because of the animal agriculture. And nobody talks about it. Sure, right? but, sure. But now no, the change is happening. I, I mean, there's a, there are several movements because it is their, uh, the anti-cruelty or um, the sustainable world or health or whatever. There's a confluence of factors driving. I don't think this is the status quo going to be 20 years from now. Mm. Unless we all go to Mars or something, this planet is going to be inhabitable, right? Mm. So uh, what is the answer? But the, the humanity and the, and, and the world has the answer. It is going to uh, evolve into a sustainable uh, future. I mean, so far humanity has evolved, right? From um, 10 million people in Europe, uh, few centuries ago to whatever world population uh, seven plus billion right now, sure. uh, we, we still hasn't seen the end of it or the maximum capacity of it. But we know at this point, in order to go to the next um, several steps in terms of education, health, uh, agriculture, how what we are going to feed all these people, things have to change dramatically. And it will. So that's what we are betting on. What are those emerging trends that's going to sustain? So when I look at data and analytics, I don't look at only the technology and what we are going to do. How does the data and analytics fit into the future of the world? So in a sense, we are asking the question, what is the data and analytics of the future? And that doesn't exist by itself alone in a vacuum, right? It exists to support the future of the world. Yeah. When you put that into that context, it becomes what you do every day becomes meaningful. I love that. Yeah, connecting the day-to-day work, the skills that you have to something meaningful infuses it with so much more purpose and power. And I'm, I'm curious because you're obviously a very innovative person. You even talked about your time at GE, that was one of the things that led to some misfit is being an innovative person in the middle of a, a type of company that's more just interested in maintenance, right? And so much of what you're doing, much of what you're describing is very innovative. And I'm, what, I'm curious if you guys have any processes or philosophy or, or, or things that you guys do intentionally to foster this kind of innovation in your company. Yes. So uh, that philosophy is uh, innovation as a process. Okay, so uh, we, we reward people to learn and innovate. Okay, so we have several programs 
set up uh, that way. So like uh, the certain technologies, certification bonus. We, we pay the people to uh, <clears throat> the increase their uh, knowledge base, right? And we pay the people in, the, in their annual evaluation. Uh, they, there are three areas, okay? There are a lot of different areas. In, are you a good team player? Are you uh, <clears throat> coming to work every day, do your right, job? Right. The traditional things are there. But apart from them, uh, the, the, there are three distinct areas, um, which is uh, revenue generation. Okay, the, these three things has to be taken into account in conjunction. Second one uh, is IP creation. Third one is business development. Okay, so uh, this is... What was the second one? Uh, second one is IP creation, okay. property creation, and third one is the business development. So this goes to everybody in the company, all the leadership, um, all the developers, all the different uh, roles in the data and analytics value chain. The thing is that unless you are thinking about creating IP, so IP not for the sake of the intellectual property, it's value. IP is a way of innovation. Okay, so you, you had to, uh, to do something fundamentally new to get a pattern, for example, right? So you have to think very hard on it. Um, uh, and it's built into their everyday life. You have to do business development, not because we want to grow the business, because you, you have to work with your clients, not as an order taker. You are a consultant, you are a data analytic consultant. When, when we go to our clients, we are at a different level. Many of our people, all of our people at this point have a master's or PhD in a relevant field, right? Wow. So uh, your average customer uh, is um, not uh, looking down on them. Uh, and most of them, the good ones in the data analytics space, uh, they, they are like say sophisticated Excel users. Okay, so they're power users. They understand their business, they understand their data, but they don't really understand the capabilities of AI and the, the capabilities of machine learning, the capabilities of forecasting, all of those things that dramatically change the business outcomes of what they do, mm. right? Now, our people shouldn't go there as a technician, hey, I can write this program for you and tell me what to do. I discourage uh, people from even asking, tell me what to do because you should know that's why they pay you big bucks, right? You are a consultant, you are highly educated um, and you're highly experienced. You know what's happening in the company. So we have knowledge sharing uh, sessions. Uh, every week we either have a Toastmasters meeting or a knowledge sharing meeting every week. Huh. So uh, you are encouraged to present in that. There, there are points they earn. Uh, so in our Kavi Academy, we keep track of everybody's learning, um, and anybody can do any project. So uh, we have uh, a structure called the self-organizing teams. We have the functional team, we have the lab team, we have the software team, we have the services team, we have the solutions team, but anybody can work with anybody. They don't need the permission from their bosses or me. Hey, I, I just have this idea, I want to do the project. And we don't say that hey, you work on innovation project one day a week, you work on the innovation project every day, okay? 
So um, when you're doing a project uh, for your client that for which you are getting paid, you can innovate. They come up with a better way to do that for your client. So uh, the, th this is a fundamentally difference from uh, how, how the services are provided, right? So yeah. just, just think about their, the, the services, their revenue model. It, it, it's a hours time rate, okay? So the longer you um, <clears throat> drive this uh, and the higher you charge, uh, th that you go revenue up, right? So that's a simple one. But your client is going to pretty soon uh, realize, as I did in GE, is this is useless. Uh, you have a long-term contract. You bring the people who are not qualified to do this work. So we have to teach them what to do. Uh, and when we teach them, you take them and put it in another client. And then I had to go through the pain again. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but instead, um, what you can do is you can add value. Hey, I have a support team of 15 people. Let's talk about how we can make it 10 next year. That means you have to automate some of the stuff, right? You have to, the, 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 their question, uh, when I talk to their commercial people, hey, you have people, we have had 15 people for three years now. Hey, I, I don't get any growth. I don't get my payment bonus, whatever, how I can make it 20 people next year. I said, get out of here. You, you are trying to uh, introduce more inefficiency into what I do today. I'm not interested. Yeah. <laughs> Right? So we have managed services team, their uh, motto uh, is automation, okay? So if I can't show um, my client year by year, I can bring your managed services needs down by 10%, 20%. Now I'm providing value. I mean, I can find, if, if this the, the thing works, I can find many clients. I'm not saying that our business should go down, Instead of trying to milk the one client, if find the 10 clients where you can add value, right? So don't ask the client. If the client knew what to do, then you don't have a job. Mm. Okay, bring value to that relationship. So all relationships are built on value. If you don't provide value, there is no business, no relationship, right? Which is true for personal relationship as well as business relationship. So figure out how to create value. That is the business development. That is the IP creation, what I'm talking about. Uh, it makes so much sense because initially, without knowing your model and the way people were doing things, I was just, I was wondering how they were finding time and giving priority to innovating on new things while trying to work on a project while serving a customer. But you're saying it's actually in the service of the customer yes. that the innovation is happening, whether they're encouraged to, Yes, you, you have to make yourself obsolete. That's when the clients uh, need. So in our um, early stages of our software, there, there was internal pain because yeah, our software is supposed to increase productivity of the development team. Oh, now that's bad business for services. Well, it is, right? But if we don't disrupt that, somebody else is going to do it. Might as well we do it. <laughs> Right, yeah. so, but but in, in in combination, our pie is still bigger. If a client sees value and they want to do more things with us, so yeah. rather than point, giving the point solutions, hey, let's give this holistic solution. I see now people are moving from the services to software and to manage services. 
and, and then we are value creation. We are collaborating with the clients. We are partnering with the clients. The clients is always, if I see myself on the other side, hey, what took you so long? Hey, why is this, 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 why do you have to, somebody has to sit and eyeball this, hey, um, why you don't have automation scripts that's monitoring all of this? Why do you have to have people in India here? Well, now we are talking. Yeah. Right? So, uh, so that's the innovation. But, but now problem with this innovation is, yeah, I can't work with the, the people like VCs and others because they are trying to see that prevailing business model. Hey, show me the math. Hey, are you growing? Are you getting more into the customer? What's your growth model? And uh, this thing. So they are asking me how inefficient you are. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too good at my job. Exactly. So um, I, I saw this uh, very early, but but coming in to start the business, I already knew that. Uh, the intuitively knew it, but that had to be proven to the rest of the company and to myself itself that VCs and um, other lenders don't add, add much value. I mean, they have the, those stellar stories. I don't know whatever the one one company out of thousand that made it big and <laughs> right say, right right but but most of it is is very very unproductive work uh, people do crazy stuff for money i don't think it's good oh man i'm seeing a very strong parallel to even your your philosophy and desire to innovate in the healthcare system because if we go back there you're talking about the business model really supports not necessarily people getting better but continue to being treated right Exactly. And it sounds like it was similar in the consulting world where it's like yeah. you're actually rewarded if you they keep needing you for a long period of time, right? Yeah. So what, what, what do their software company and uh, services company, um, how can we create more dependence? That's yes, that's the old model. Right. And the software companies, how do we get the stickiness? That means you can get to my software, you can't get out. Yeah. So, so that's that what we talked about there. Um, the rip and replace and all that, right? It's not easy to get out. So the same thing is uh, going on with the cloud, right? You get into a cloud and man, you are, you're done because now at least you had some control when you had your data centers and stuff. Now you are in somebody's cloud. All your data is there. All your processes are there. Don't ever think of getting out of there. Yeah. And at the current state, you, you, you can't very easily switch the cloud also. If you're in one cloud, you're stuck with them because you're using all their software stack and other other things. So you're there for a long time. That's right? how it feels even with my my Apple iPhone. Exactly. Anytime I've thought about switching, I'm like, there's too much. There's too many things that I'd have to learn again. I'd, I'm, I'm using things that only work on Apple, and now I don't even want to go through the energy. But you realize they've trapped you there, right? Exactly. So that that is that uh, when the lock-in. The, the technical term in the software, that is the prevailing model. We don't think those models are going to survive the next couple of decades. Good. I like it. Man, I love I love where your head's at. You're a true disruptor. And it's 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 fun to see, but you're a disruptor with a purpose, right? Like you're not just shaking things up to shake it up, but because you see a better way. Yes. So um, I, I mean how do you make a world a better place, right? So right. but you, you we have to temper it down in different scenarios. So, so that other hard part being an entrepreneur is how do you um, 
keep that disruption contained so that you can interact with the people around you. You can be nice to your family and not trying to disrupt them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that's think about it, right? Every yeah. genius we know who disrupted anything, they have a crappy family life. Mm. 99% of them are divorced. Um, their kids are estranged and everything, right? Yeah, because they got maniacally focused on the solving the problem and driving change, right? Exactly. So my wife, so we, we have a perfect understanding. So my wife sees me like zone in on something. He said, okay, here goes the dog with the bone again. Don't, don't trouble it. Okay, so we, we have uh, created that balance and what each bring to the table. But, but that's not a normal thing you can do with your spouse, okay, or, or, or your kids. So yeah. you have to be very, very careful. And I remember the day I was, I don't even remember what we were arguing. I'm, I'm arguing with my wife to, in a way, it's something to do something different, right? Yeah. So in the car, so we are going. The funny part is I don't even remember what we argued, right? She said, hey, I respect your mother. I respect your family. I respect who you are, how you came here. I saw you early in life, how you... Um, came to the top of the class uh, in Russia, not even speaking the language at the time. And I trust you to do all that, but I had to point out one thing. Um, <clears throat> your mother missed when you were a small child. Uh, there's a lot of uh, autistic uh, cases that goes undiagnosed. Uh, you are one of them. She said, I have no concept of other feeling, other people's feelings. Wow. After is being with me for 30 years, right? So she finally told it to me recently. Um, so um, I said, oh, oh man, that is true. Because when I want to do something, it doesn't matter what others say, what others do, how they try to convince naysayers, I, I don't care. I, I have, it, it's not that I intentionally, this thing, Sure. I just don't have the, those senses developed, right? So, um, when she pointed out, so so now I take a like a special care to. I looked around all the people who did anything worthwhile, how they are disruptive to people around them, their families, their children. So I, I make a conscious effort to not to do so. Wow, so that that's a, the the innovative disruption part come naturally, but the other side is not natural. So I had to work on it. Yeah. I mean, I see this with every brilliant person, right? Like whatever strength you have, there is some flip side of a blind spot or an underdeveloped side, and that can often be causing pain, right? And we have to be very aware. And luckily you have a wife that knows you so well and loves you so well, so well that she could articulate something like that to you to help you see it, but also in a way that you could hear it. That's a, that's a tough thing to hear from somebody, right? So um, I'm more and more becoming very, so those are the things like that uh, uh, originally I told about uh, the, how the corporate success versus the, as an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur has to have uh, all of those empathy and understanding your employees, family, and all that is highly developed, mm. uh, which is not the case for many of them. The, some, some development and the craziness comes at the expense of another. Yeah. And, we, we see that all, right? I mean, all the latest, uh, Steve Jobs to now recently, uh, <clears throat> the 
Bezos. Yep. Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Yeah. So I, I mean, this is uh, I don't know. I myself didn't do the analysis, but if somebody do the data analysis, this might be a, a very thing that would jump out in this case. Actually, in, in Steve Jobs' case, he said this in his dying bed. Uh, um, that he described this as this is a problem. The the lack of awareness of of other people's feelings and and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember the exact words. I had to look it up, but he, he said it in uh, no other, the no uncertain terms that the pursuit of money and the, uh, the this maniac uh, focus on the the business and the innovator is very bad for everything else in your life. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Oh man, well, you know, I guess in some way I was blessed to not be. Uh, to not be quite as smart so that I don't have that problem. Um, it's, it's not as I can imagine if you really are uh, like you, like so many of these others really blessed with the site where you can see what other people can't see. And also the, the mental horsepower to feel like you can contribute to the solution, how that could suck in like a laser beam, right? Where it just takes all your focus. Um, I mean, even, Elon Musk was talking about how often his wife will catch him wandering around in the hall in the middle of the night, just yeah. in a blank stare. Cause his mind is going about a rocket shuttle or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it must be hard to operate when, when that's your world. Right. Was it wife number four? Or- exactly. Right. <laughs> I don't even know. Exactly. Again, it must be incredibly hard to keep up some kind of functioning, right. so, healthy relationships outside of that work. I, I, I um, make about Elon Musk is uh, uh, Elon's wife wants to go to the mall. Elon wants to go to the mosque. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's thinking about going to the mall this weekend. He's trying to figure out how to go to Mars. They're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even in the same plane. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to forget that. That's awesome. Oh, man. Okay. Well, let me ask you this before we get into our lightning round questions. You mentioned something that I just want to highlight or get more information on. You talked about a few things that you guys do, weekly Toastmasters and or some kind of shared learning. And I want to know what that consists of. Like, what do you mean? What do those meetings look like? And then also help us help paint a picture. How many employees are we at right now for, for your company that are participating in these, these kinds of processes and systems? Yeah, majority of them. So we are still small, under 40 people at this point. And okay. hopefully we will be on 50 this year uh, with the plans. But uh, the yeah, majority of them participate in all of these things um, I talked about. Toastmasters is the Toastmasters International. About 10 plus years ago, uh, my wife, uh, when she was at the Baxter um, as a quality engineer, uh, quality and risk engineer, she invited me to um, participate in Toastmasters. Yep. She believed in the developing coming from the foreign countries, uh, speaking different languages and other she said hey, we, we should uh, um, invest in uh, improving our communication skills, right? So English is my third language. Um, uh, I speak uh, my mother tongue, Russian, uh, and English is my third uh, language. I did my undergraduate in Russian. Good right? Lord. So, uh, so I joined uh, as a family member of her Toastmasters Club uh, at Baxter. And then I realized a, um, as technical people, we have immense amount of communication 
difficulties, how to make a complex concept to simplify and understandable to uh, ordinary people who are through process managers, customers, right? Uh, so uh, so I, I found it very helpful and, uh, and she helped uh, develop our Toastmasters Club. Uh, right now our Toastmasters Club is uh, in the area distinguished Toastmasters Club, a lot of participation. Um, and I, we, we have incorporated into the curriculum. So HR supports it, we pay all the dues. Uh, so it's an investment from the company, from the people perspective, develop uh, their communication and leadership skills. Mm. And it intensely helps uh, the people because uh, the technical people are notoriously uh, famous for uh, being bad communicators. So that's an investment we uh, used to do. And then uh, the, the internal knowledge share. So as we grow, um, left side of the business doesn't know what the right side of is doing. They're, they are all busy, right? So, but this collective learning and collaboration and knowledge sharing uh, is an important part. Uh, the sort of, a, there's a, several aspects to it. One of it is the, the competition. Now that you're developing your communication skills, you are coming and presenting your latest of creators, what you're doing in the lab, and, and maybe somebody else is doing a managed services engagement, they don't know what is going on in the lab. So it's a, a way to keep um, that communication flow internally and keep everybody connected. And now that this year we, we started, we don't have to put a lot of this process around this self-organizing teams. If you have the time, or if you are in between engagements, or if you have some slack time, we collaborate. Call your friend and get to know. So uh, a lot of that is happening in this knowledge sharing session. Also, people get to know each other. People uh, hear about what they're doing, exciting stuff, and I want to be a part of that. Oh, that's why then healthcare is uh, uh, giving a lot of um, people people um, by themselves have passions, right? Many of them uh, understand as educated people, a education, healthcare yeah. is the, the two most things that you can get the people early on. So we are getting a lot of traction. Yeah, I want to contribute to that. If you're writing a paper, you're writing a blog post, I want to contribute, right? A lot of volunteering is going on. So that's also good for the, we did not stop any of these things during the pandemic and in an indirect way, it helped to keep the people together a one hour a week during our lunch time we all get together, either have a Toastmaster or knowledge sharing session. So it worked out very well during the pandemic. Uh, HR was very happy that the people morale was high um, and people are really happy. So what, what, what I say is that we can't evaluate them just like the factory worker. These people are highly educated people. I'm not worried about mo most of them overwork, not because we require that, but because that's what they do, Yeah, right? I myself is overworked um, crazily. Uh, my wife has to come and remind me to drink water, eat, to go for a walk or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, because of that, uh, the, we have to uh, keep them, the, w w their contribution is not in terms of hours. So we have to get out of those hours times plus rate into more of a, what is your true contribution. Yeah. Whether you spend 10 hours on this or one hour on this. Yeah, what's the value output? Exactly. Yep. So that is that is what we are trying to make our customers understand also. If we want to move away from this the time and material 
which are, we do a lot of fixed paid and other engagements. We also are talking now uh, of value-based uh, uh, pricing. Uh, yeah, we'll be happy with the piece of the savings or the new revenue we can <clears throat> give to you with analytics. So those are the explosive growth opportunities. Absolutely. Right. So when you think about the uh, different uh, value we can create, um, some of the engagement strategy engagements that we do, um, the value part uh, is a necessary piece that we upfront quantify uh, with the clients uh, how much impact, business impact this project can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it tens of hundreds of millions at, at, at times. So now we need to get to a different um, models of structuring this engagement. So those are the, some of the things we are planning how to how to evolve the company and, and change and grow in this trend. Yeah, it's brilliant. There was a um, Tom Beatty is a founder that I interviewed on here with a company called ISG and Insight Sourcing Group. And they often are helping find inefficiencies in companies in terms of stuff like toilet paper they're buying or you know areas where they're unnecessarily you know uh, expenses and too high. And they basically come in and find that and say, here's how much money we could save you, right? And you only pay based off of how much money we save you. And he said it was the e- it's the easiest sale in the world because they're only paying you based off of the result you're getting them, the value they're getting them. So it's a no brainer to them. They're like, you can save me $100,000 a year or a million dollars a year. Of course, yeah, it's no brainer than we pay you $100,000 because it's a 10th of what you're saving us. And so it sounds like if you guys found some version of that business model, I mean, that's going to be so easy to, to, to land those customers. Right. So digital transformation, um, for example, the returns are huge, right? The, not only saving the companies to survive and compete in the marketplace, but the, the, the true attraction or, or, or the differentiation is by applying data and analytics. You can have an enormous amount of efficiency, productivity, and real true hard benefit, mm. right? So that is the reason why they do it. That's the reason uh, they want to do it because otherwise they become irrelevant and they uh, become inefficient and they become the dinosaur, right? So in in that scenario, uh, this is very, very important. If we can add value, we can show it how to let's let's get into a partnership. So that model is working very well. I mean, we fundamentally changed about three or four years ago when we realized that we have to, change the business model so good man this has been one of the most fascinating conversations i love learning about you this company the future of technology and and even the philosophy the unique philosophy that you see the world through is is very uh inspiring and challenging Uh, i want to i want to uh honor your time and so let's go ahead and jump into our lightning round questions so i've got five questions for you my friend starting with number one if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Yeah, value co-creation. So um, let's figure out in everything we do, innovate and co-create value. Um, the innovation is the only way to co-create, or maybe one of the ways to co-create value, but it has to be perceived by the, the client and it has to be perceived by us that you created uh, that's why I call the co-creation. I like that. You are advancing the, the company at the same time you're helping the customer. 
otherwise there's no business. Yeah. Yeah. A win-win. I like that. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Yes. So the best one um, is reading these books uh, called Mastering the Complex Sale by Jeff Tal. Okay. Um, I am an avid reader. I I read um, several dozen books every year since an early age. Um, The sales and marketing and commercial side did not come to me naturally. That's one of the things I had to work hard. I didn't have to do it uh, at the corporate side uh, when I operated. So I, I, I pretty much read every book, good book written on the sales, marketing, commercial activities, innovation, and other. But I found a few years ago this book, uh, this lays out that value co-creation framework. So that's, uh, that's what helped the business. I mean, this is producing results um, as we speak. Uh, well, that's going to be on my my next to do my next to read list. That sounds awesome. Yes, yes. This one I, I recommend to everybody. I, I mean, after I read so many books and in search for this and found one, um, is a, is a good book to read. Uh, awesome. Yeah. What about, the, what about the worst advice? Worst advice is actually not to start the business. So everybody except I told you my wife said, okay, uh, okay, you can resign today. Um, versus everybody I spoke to. Um, I mean, they were supportive, my boss and CEO, uh, this thing, they couldn't understand why I do it. Um, and they couldn't uh, understand how crazy I am uh, because the family to run, mortgage to pay, daughter is getting ready to go to college. Why on earth would you uh, quit a high paying, well paid job? Sure. That was that was crazy, and I couldn't explain that either. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I wanted to do it, so I did it. I love it. I love it. I'm glad you did. Number three, what causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? Yeah. So um, it's I think the balancing the commercial aspirations and their innovation and the future uh, aspirations, right? So where there, some of the things we did, uh, the transformation from their services business to uh, services software and solution business was very hard. It was hard to people, hard to myself personally, because uh, you can't, even though that's how we started, that we had to do the services because we wanted to be self-funded. So we need to get into our revenue generation so we can um, the, put all the money in the R&D side for uh, software and, and solutions. That's our longer term goal, right? Um, so um, <clears throat> that's the, the thing I, 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 I tell people a, most of the time, I live in the future. I don't live in the past and I am not here. So um, that is sometimes uh, um, challenging uh, when you have to um, run a business, uh, run a team uh, and uh, do those things, uh, it, it becomes challenging. It's, it's finding the, the right balance, but luckily I have uh, people, uh, the CFO, um, and CEO, or they're fully focused on the operational aspect of the business. And so we have, we have gotten 
to the 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 right uh, balance of uh, all the different activities but we by far invest way more as a percentage of profits in the the, the future than any company would do um, and um, at, at this time um, not having to take the external money not uh, be constrained by the short-term money-making uh, schemes uh, being able to uh, grow uh, to be one of the uh, Inc. 5000 companies is an amazing task. I want to give credit to my team. Well, you found a, you know, I heard uh, another brilliant man, Josh Waitzkin, say that he believes every brilliant, successful person, which don't often, don't always correlate brilliant and success, have found a way to organize their life around their eccentricities, right? Yes. And you surrounding yourself with people like your wife, with the team, the, the, the executives you have around you is a way to take advantage of your gift while also rounding it out with different perspectives and different skill sets and mindsets like that. Right. Um, so kudos to you. Well done. Yes. So um, I'll give you an example. So uh, my former GE boss uh, came to visit us uh, a few years ago um, after we started. So uh, he, he met Nalika, who, who runs the, uh, the HR and finance uh, side. Uh, and Nalika introduced to him, he, he, he paused a little bit, okay? He looked at her and looked at me and said, now finally I know how you run a company. Wow. I couldn't even do my expense report back in GE. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it makes me think of when we first got we first got on our call today before we hit record. I said something about what day is it? A Monday? And he said, I don't know. I don't ever pay attention to time or money. <laughs> I said, Well, how did you get successful? And that was your answer. You're like, I've got good people around me. Yes. I love that. Okay. Question number four. What is your BHAG, your big hairy audacious goal for this company? Yes. Um, so um keep the company in this space of innovation for years to come and, and reduce the dependency on me with the company. Okay, mm -hmm. so I, I, to a certain extent, I have done very well in that regard. I mean, company can run without me for months if, if need to uh, right now. So um, that now my behavior is not a specific one, I need to go to Mars or, or something like that. But my BHAG is a creating that company and the culture and the processes that we can sustain this level of innovation, which will, I mean, if you're doing the right things, the money will come, right? So if you have the money focus, then the, the, the trajectory of the company is different. If you are backed by VCs or if, if they are trying to double, triple their money every year, versus how you invest uh, in a longer term uh, in the mind of two different irreconcilable things, right? So my behag is to create that company that uh, uh, the, the, the definition I use internally is the analytics powerhouse. That we already have the structure, we already have the structure, uh, uh, the, the, the traction on that, which is that software services and solutions 
very focused in data and analytics. That's the only thing we do. But we do everything surrounding that, not a little piece of data or a little piece of analytics, data science or data engineering or anything like that. We do the full stack in the data and analytics, but that's how you can bring the value to the, the customers. So in the future, I gave a couple of examples. I don't know exactly how, but I know healthcare has to reinvent itself. Sure. I know transportation has to reinvent uh, itself and all imaginable industry. And everybody at this point has picked data and analytics is the way I am going to do that transformation, right? So we are uh, again in the, the right time at the, the right place. So all what we have to do is have that company who will help healthcare go to the future. Yep. So the, in that context, we are the analytics company of the future that will facilitate the healthcare of the future, transportation of the future, education of the future, right? So I don't have a specific uh, revenue target or uh, specific destination other than that, A, everybody has chosen data and analytics to be that vehicle to get them into the future. I want to be that vehicle. Come on. You got me excited. I love it. Okay. Here's our fun, creative question. A break from all the, all the technical and philosophical questions I've been asking you. Well, it's kind of philosophical. Uh, if you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past and tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? Yes, sir. That's um, that balancer. Um, I told you, um, you can't uh, do their, I, I actually did that and um, got the company into a, a precarious position at one point and I had to ratchet it back with the help of um, the leadership team. You can't do the innovation at the expense of the operations. You have to have the operations such that it can fuel the innovation. So you have to have that right focus. Even though I say I have no concept of the money and time and all that, those are real, right? So I need to get help. I, I would have gotten the help sooner and I would have um, had the operation side of um, it straightened out much faster than we did. Right from Love there. it. Beautiful. Well, Vegeta, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, again, I feel like I got to sit with an Elon Musk today just with a healthier family life. And uh, I've learned so much. I've got a whole page full of notes uh, about your company and the unique things you guys are doing, the services you guys are providing the world. And I'm just honored to know you, my friend. So thank you for taking time to be with us today and share your insights with us. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.